was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so honored to welcome my guest, Jennifer Ashley Tepper. In addition to penning four legendary volumes entitled The Untold Stories of Broadway, she has also served as creative and programming director of Feinstein's 54 Below, also known as Broadway's Living Room, since 2013. In celebration of the 10th anniversary of The Room, she will join me to talk about the 3,500-plus shows she's produced during her time there, as well as the way in which the club evolved during the pandemic. Aside from her work at 54 Below, Tepper is also a powerhouse producer of Broadway and off-Broadway shows, including Be More Chill and Broadway Bounty Hunter. She recently consulted on the movie of Tick, Tick, Boom, and was a recipient of the 2020 Lincoln Center Emerging Artist Award. So now, without further ado, Jennifer Ashley Tepper. So I would love to start by asking you, um, how did your interest in theater first begin? Sure. So I grew up in Boca Raton, Florida, um, so very far away from Broadway, as many of us do, um, and became super obsessed with like past recordings and musicals from a really young age. Um, I was lucky enough to go to a local theater camp um, and get taken to like tours and local productions in Florida. Um, and just like from the time I, it was my ninth birthday, I was like, I want cast albums for my birthday. So um, yeah, I was just like very lucky to become obsessed with it at a young age. Oh. And what were your original ambitions in terms of, did you always want to be a producer or was there something before that? Yeah, so I, I always was super interested in like theater history and I always was really interested in like making new musicals happen. And I was always very interested in underappreciated musicals. And I kind of knew that I wanted to have some kind of path where I got to integrate those things, not knowing exactly what job that would be, but knowing I wanted to kind of be involved with that. So um, what's crazy is like, when I think about this question in terms of 54 Below, um, you know, 54 Below didn't even exist when I was in college, let alone when yeah. I was growing up. So it's the kind of job that does kind of combine those interests. Um, and a lot of the other stuff I've done has combined it as well, but it didn't even exist for me to aspire to. Um, but I really enjoyed performing a lot when I was growing up. Like I did all the high school musicals and every year now I go back and um, adjudicate high school Florida thespians, which was like my lifeblood when I was a high school student. So I loved performing, um, but I never was like, I'm going to do this professionally. It was kind of just, I loved being part of a cast and um, in a rehearsal room. Yeah. And so how did your move to New York eventually happen? So I only applied to NYU. I was like, I want to go to school in New York. I want to go to NYU. NYU or bust. If I don't get in, I'm going to like chain myself to my bed. <laughs> apply till I get in. Um, so I applied to Tish for dramatic writing, thinking that, oh, like, you know, I love theater and I love writing. So dramatic writing will be great. Um, you know, they didn't have majors for someone who wanted to be a theater historian. They don't have a, you know, producing undergrad major or anything like that. Um, so I was really lucky kind of because I ended up in a department where I was with people who wanted to be playwrights and screenwriters, which meant that I was really surrounded by writers and spent a lot of time developing new work with people at school. And also because it didn't exactly fit my interests and ambitions 
options, I had to create my own major to a degree and um, really spent a lot of college like teaching myself, like assigning myself oh. books and um, you know, like a lot of us being like, oh, like NYU says we can see the show for free. Maybe I'll see it for free six times and take notes on it, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, so really like did a lot of internships, um, created work on campus that like was, you know, my own um, kind of idea, uh, stuff like that. And, and really got to start carving out my own path in that way. And were you interested in or aware of the cabaret world at this point or was it mostly Broadway? Definitely. No, I was super interested in it. And in fact, since so many of my favorite musicals, um, a lot of them were like song cycles, you know, I was obsessed with like Bill Finn's elegies and stuff like that, which obviously is a theatrical show, but um, sort of kind of a, a relative of cabaret and that kind of thing. Um, no, I was very interested in it. And I attended a lot of shows at Joe's Pub and at the Laurie Beachman Theater. Um, and actually, you know, when I was a college student, I was already attending a lot of like new musical theater concerts, which I like, you know, I became a fan of Joe Iconis because I saw a lot of cabaret concerts when I was in college before I even like knew him and um, from that I like knew I wanted to work with him someday so um, yeah there's always been such a vibrant at least since I've been in the city since 2004 uh, scene for new musicals and cabaret and also um, you know celebrating older musicals I remember seeing so many uh, musicals at the duplex that were like uh, underappreciated musicals from my favorite book not since Carrie oh. life like shows that encores would never do probably um, and really being like oh my god there's so much cool stuff you can do in cabaret because you have the flexibility of like a smaller um you know capacity a smaller audience and like you know not having to run for a million performances like there are so many cool things you can do because you have a smaller uh kind of field to work with yeah yeah and you mentioned and this probably comes later but how did the idea happen for if it only even runs a minute for that series thing you know, um, I, when I graduated NYU, I was really lucky in that I had, um, been obsessed with the musical title of show when I was an NYU student and I produced a show of my own on NYU campus where we really wanted to include some this is the long-ish answer but um, we wanted to include some title of show material in this NYU student production I was doing and the title of show creators were super nice they wrote back and they were like um, we're so sorry you can't include it because it's in the process of being published um, but we're so glad that you you know reached out and thank you so much and I invited them to our show and they all came even though we didn't oh. even do their material so that's how I got to know started getting to know them and we stayed in touch and then um when I was a senior in high school they were looking for an intern because they were creating like basically the first Broadway web series back when that was like not a thing that happened um about how they were gonna go to Broadway and I got hired as their like intern go for assistant girl and spent really my senior year running around creating this show with them which featured like a huge number of like Broadway celebs and um you know it, it was kind of my introduction to a lot of people in the theater world and then when I was graduating college the show did move to Broadway and the director, Michael Barras, hired me as his assistant. Um, so it was like a whirlwind, amazing opportunity. I got to spend like the summer after I graduated college at the Lyceum being like a director's assistant. And then after that, I still kind of had the same aims that I was talking about of like wanting to work with musical theater history, new musicals, underappreciated musicals, and not really having a way to get like a full-time theater job like so many of us. Um, and, you know, like I applied to a million jobs on Playbill.com that I didn't get. And I, I tried just like, I had a million survival jobs 
exams. I was like tutoring the SAT and like babysitting, doing so many things and kept getting like really cool opportunities to like assist a director for a week, but it was just like a week gig and, and really was just like, where's my, I want to work for a producer. I want to be in like a theater office. Um, and it was during that time that really every single thing that I would later turn into a full-time job kind of had the seeds planted during that time when I was like, uh, give me a job. And so I had to kind of create my own stuff. And one of the things I started doing was um, putting together these like historic photo albums and posting them on Facebook of like Broadway history and Kevin Michael Murphy, who I knew and was friends with, um, was reached reached out to me and was like, I'm so obsessed with these photos. And, you know, we were talking about the photos a lot. And then we also started talking about the idea of doing a concert celebrating underappreciated musicals. And we're like, ding, ding, ding. Why don't we include like photos also and have like original cast members and original writers come sing from underappreciated musicals? Because we both just love flops. And I say that with love. Um, and so it was really born of like not having a full-time job, wanting to like do stuff I loved and create in that way. And from like Facebook photo albums full of like historic photos. And how do you choose the, the flops for each show? It's been really fun over the years because we did make, Kevin and I made kind of a um, promise that we would not repeat any musicals um, and we would not repeat any performers. And with very few exceptions, we've held true to that, which part of that was because we were like, well, it would be really tempting to do like a million songs from Smile. We love Smile. But if we really don't repeat a musical, like we can do so many musicals and really make sure we like spread it out. And there are so many like really obscure shows I don't think I ever would have discovered if I wasn't like, hey, we can't repeat one. And also um, in each show, we really try to do a variety of hey like you know let's do a song from the 70s and then a song from the 30s and you know let's do a song that was written like you know from a female perspective and then from a male perspective it's kind of like making it have as much variety as possible um within what it already is which is underappreciated musical so um yeah we really just try to pick a cross section each time and um create like variety with what kinds of shows we're presenting and is there any show that you either weren't able to find any material for or it was very hard to find material for? Such a good question. The crazy thing is, I was talking about this the other day, I um, was talking about how uh, there are like seven Broadway musicals that have closed in previews historically. And a lot of the shows we've done in Runs a Minute um, have not been recorded, let alone published. Like, you know, obviously if there's sheet music we can purchase, we purchase it. But a lot of times we're like, okay, we want to do a song from Rock by Hamlet. Okay, there's no published sheet music. Um, there's not a cast recording. We have the bootleg. So we need to get a very talented musician, hire them to transcribe it from the bootleg. And so numerous times we have had our Runs a Minute video be the first time that a song was publicly available, even though that song might have been like on Broadway, you know, um, which is crazy to think about. And the one I was talking about the other day is one of the seven musicals that closed in previews uh, was Little Prince and the Aviator, which I thought oh. of because there's another Little Prince adaptation on Broadway right now. And Anthony Rapp at a very young age played the Little Prince um, in the show that closed in previews. And I was so lucky that he came to do Runs a Minute, but we um, transcribed a sheet music for him to sing uh, from the bootleg of his eight-year-old self singing. And it like neither me and Kevin nor Anthony Rapp could fully understand some of the words. <laughs> it's a very like surreal experience. Um, so yeah, there have definitely been some that we've had to really dig around for. Oh yeah. And so that brings me to another question about posting them on YouTube. How do you feel about sort of recording cabarets and making them available for free? What do you, is that a good thing or do you think? I, I totally, it really is. It's, um, Kevin always likes to say like he was on the Book of Mormon tour for a while and um, 
awesomely and he was at a gay bar i feel like it was in utah but i might be misremembering it was in middle it was in I, i'm gonna say it was in utah because i really feel like it was it's in utah and someone in a gay bar came up to him and was like you're kevin michael murphy from the <laughs> i love my wife youtube video and he was like it's the most famous i've ever been in my life so i always am just like that's the dream like i just want to be recognized from like and i love my wife youtube video in like a part of the country i've never been in um but yeah i think um part of our goal from the very beginning was let's make people hear these musicals and these songs like this work of these writers um that they haven't gotten to hear before and that's obviously goes beyond the 150 people in the room like it was always our dream to put every single youtube video we could from rinse a minute up and just like have it be available and a lot of that has led to you know all the time now people are like oh my god i sing such and such song in my you know concerts because it was on YouTube. Oh. It. So like, that's the best thing ever. Um, there have been a few videos over the course of time that have been like, you know, the singers have been like, this is for, you know, the people in the room only. Most of the time that's because they are someone who was in the original company and they tell a story that goes along with their song and they just am like, this is private. I don't want more people to hear it. Um, but almost always we get to put it up. Um, but it's been interesting in terms of, you know, over the course of the pandemic, obviously so many conversations have revolved around how do we properly compensate artists and performers and musicians and um, everyone who is involved when you do put something online and, and there's any kind of money involved because um, it was a way for artists to make money during the pandemic. So the fact that, um, you know, it was like a monumental task to uh, create a program for 54 Below where, you know, we can charge $15 or $25 and stream an entire concert live and then the, you know, artists are compensated. And so that's been um, an interesting thing to contend with the fact that, you know, I still think that Hopefully when Jason Robert Brown does a 54 Below show, there are videos on YouTube for free, but also there's someone who can't attend, who wants to buy the whole thing to see it live, who can live stream it. So it's definitely a balance, but I think it's yeah. good that we're trying to like figure out how to do both. Yeah. And so 54 Below is of course the main subject because of the 10th anniversary. And so how did you first hear about that idea or how did you first get involved? So what's so funny is like, I remember when 54 Below was first being built, Joe Iconis and I were just like, oh my God, they're building like a nightclub on 54th Street and it sounds so awesome. And, um, you know, within the first year that it was open when it was really just like very, um, like, I feel like a lot of the times it was just like one performer a night or it was like a real big Cheetah Rivera style headliner at 8 p.m. And then like maybe a late night show. Um, it definitely wasn't the kind of like programming that we have now. Um, Joe, Iconis and family, we got to perform there like very early on. And we, it was like on a completely different, the dressing rooms were on a completely different floor and like 54 Below wasn't like as well known yet. And it was just like a very early days thing that we always remember. Um, and then, you know, shortly after it opened, Philip Jeffrey Bond, who was the original programming director um, was choosing to leave um, to pursue other things. And he had years before, he had actually been the programming person at Lori Beachman, where I had done the first Runs Minute shows and also done shows oh. with Joe. And I was very lucky that Phil Bond um, recommended me and was like, oh yeah, Jennifer Tepper might be your girl. Um, and also like the owners of 54 Below knew who I was because I had produced the Joe Iconis Christmas Spectacular at 54 Below the first year that it was open. So um, it was kind of like a perfect storm i had been working uh for ken davenport broadway and off-broadway producer ken davenport for three years prior um but also like producing a lot of cabaret and concerts on my own so it really was like a perfect moment it also very crazily happened that i started getting you know these calls and interviews about taking over programming at 54 below um when i was in the middle of writing my first book which was oh. like 
huge because I also was doing the 200 interviews that are in that first book at the same time. Um, so it was really like, I always say, it's like, I've never slept less than in a couple of months. And also two of my very closest friends, Lauren Marcus and Eric William Morris did a production of their playing our song. And I would never miss that in a million years. And I always remind them like, you guys, I only missed it. Cause I was like taking over 54 below, still working on my old job, writing a book for the first time, whatever. It was a crazy time. Um, but I took over the programming in uh, 2013. Uh, so, you know, it's the 54 below 10th anniversary and it's, I've worked there for about nine years and, um, you know, it was such a wonderful time. Um, when I first took over, I was doing an interview, I believe with theater mania in the lobby to be like, what are your plans for 54 below? Like you've just started. And at the same time, Liz Calloway and Anne Hampton Calloway were doing a sound check and they were singing our time from my favorite musical, Merrily Roll Along, as I was like giving this interview, very surreal, like lots of very surreal moments. Um, and you know, right away I dove in, like one of the first big things that I did at 54 Below was a concert uh, version of Hitless, the fictional musical from season two of Smash, which was like just a huge sellout, monstrous kind of 54 Below moment. So, um, you know, I was kind of off to the races and I it really started out just so exciting from moment one. Yeah. And what changes did you make in terms of, or did you make changes in terms of the physical space of, of the room and the dressing rooms and yeah, you know, over the years we've gone, um, right now we're on, we've been on the same floor as far as the dressing rooms and the offices, the uh, 10th floor for many years, but um, it did change a couple times. Like when we first opened, it was not there. Um, we finally settled in on the 10th floor, but over the years, certainly like the room has changed you know, it's created by Broadway designers and its essential elements have stayed the same. But I would say as we've like really settled in, you know, there've definitely been more performances where like a performer will start singing in the audience or will take advantage of the stage and the audience space in different ways. Um, you know, it's it's like 10 years. It's crazy to think of like how many new things have happened. Yeah. And so you've produced, I think over 3,500 shows of 54 Below, which is amazing. And so with like two or three shows happening each night I'd be curious to know how far in advance do you like book shows and do you leave certain nights open or how does that work you know it's such a after doing it for so many years it's like a huge algorithm that always has so many factors um a lot of our programming is based on you know we do right now we do 7 p.m shows and 9 30 p.m shows and 7 p.m shows are where we count on having like a headliner you know someone who's like probably older or attracts an older audience can be at a higher ticket price. Um, that's the spot where we depend um, in terms of like our structure on people ordering a lot of like food and beverage and, and really being like, you know, the demographic that can spend money on, you know, a high level headliner. And then at 930, we have like the flexibility and, you know, excitement to do uh, younger types of shows, new writers, like aspiring performers, people that, um, you know, might not have done a cabaret before, uh, musicals and concerts. So it's kind of my job to figure out how to slot in, you know, hey, like obviously Broadway performers and off-Broadway for people in currently running shows can only do shows on Sunday or Monday nights. So, um, yeah. you know, that those are where they're going to go. And like, hey, like this kind of demographic really is, uh, you know, folks who are coming from out of town. So they might need like, you know, a Friday night. Like it's, it's a lot about slotting in in that way. And then it's a lot about figuring out, you know, how many performances can someone do? Like, 
if they can sell five or if they need to start with one, um, you know, and making sure that we're paying artists as much as we can while still keeping tickets as inexpensive as possible to get people in the door. It's like a constant balance. Um, and it's also a really big balance of, you know, people reaching out to me and pitching shows, whether it's agents yeah. or artists or writers, um, and me being like, hey, you know, it's the 20th anniversary of this musical. We should do a concert of it. Who could put that together? Or like, hey, that performer I saw on a Broadway show last night's never done a 50 or below show. Let me, you know, find a way to reach out to them. Um, so it's really like all of those things. Um, it's really helpful to book as far in advance as possible, but then there's always, you know, empty spots. So much yeah. of 54 Below being like Broadway centric cabaret means that, you know, in a given month, it's at least three or four times I hear from someone who's like, oh my God, I just booked such and such Broadway <laughs> show. Like, can I move my concert? I'm like, oh my God, congratulations. Sure. Um, you know, I find out peripherally that a lot of people have booked jobs <laughs> because they have to move 54 Below dates. But, um, but a lot of that means that, you know, while I might not have a spot in October, if someone reaches out to me now, I have three cancellations in June. Um, so it's, it's pretty unpredictable as far as like where I'm filling things in. Um, and the goal is always to have 14 shows a week. Uh, right now we used to do 1130 shows and we hope to do those again at some point soon, but you know, pandemic times have not allowed that yet. Um, but yeah, so it's always just like so many different factors. Someone might email me today and be like, Hey, I really, you know, give me all the info on their show. And it really makes sense to do a 7 PM in July. There aren't any. And then tomorrow there might be 10 of them open. Like it's so crazy. So when you receive a pitch, what would make you accept or turn down an artist or an idea or Sure. So like, we always want to make sure that it's someone who, um, you know, we don't want to throw anyone up on a stage who is going to have 15 people in the audience. Like so much yeah. of it is just going like, okay, like how can we, you know, support artists as much as possible, but also make sure that we're also making enough money to stay open. So um, how many tickets are they really able to sell based on their following? And also, you know, like, does it fit into a large amount of what we do is obviously Broadway centric. So, you know, as 54 Below has a big following ourselves, we can certainly help artists so much to sell tickets if they are, you know, Broadway folks, if depending on what they're singing, um, you know, if I get someone who's like, I'd like to yodel, I'm like, <laughs> um, you know, maybe, maybe for a couple songs, but it's just, it's a matter of kind of figuring out the content and whether it's a good fit, um, whether the artist themselves is a good fit and also whether it's not, you know, a perfect uh, kind of a, mathematical thing as far as like, oh, do they have a lot of social media? But it certainly doesn't hurt. Like if I um, see a, like a new writer emails me and they want to do a show and I see that, you know, they have a ton of like, you know, YouTube videos of their stuff and they're like really starting to build a name for themselves. Um, that certainly like does make a difference. A lot of times though, we are, you know, one of my favorite things we do is like being able to bring new writers in who maybe haven't even done a cabaret yet. Um, you know, as long as we really feel like we'll be able to support them enough to sell enough tickets that it makes sense to do the show, like we do the show. Yeah. And how much does 54 Below do of sort of marketing the young shows and how much do you rely on the people who are doing the shows to market them? What you know, it just totally depends. So much of it is like our marketing department is so amazing and they do so much to, you know, everything like social, all things social media, all things press. Um, but it really does come down to the individual performer in terms of whether people want to see them. Um, you know, one of our dreams certainly long term has always been that 
uh, people will be like, oh, I'm in New York for the night. I want to go to 54 Below. Like, it doesn't matter. I'll go see whoever's there. But, you know, as we know, like, theater is expensive to make and it's expensive to attend. And so when people are spending, like, as much money as they do to go out, they want to know who the performer is. So um, given that it is, you know, we do our best to tell our audiences and the artist's audiences what the show is going to be and, like, make sure the materials are, you know, as exciting as possible and, and support them in lots of ways. But at the end of the day, like, so much of it is just like, you know, a regular will look at our calendar and be like, well, I'm going to see five 54 Below shows this month. So like I pick these five and I definitely heard from artists being like, oh my God, like, you know, I've gotten new fans from doing shows at 54 Below and they're going to come the next time as well, which is so exciting. Um, but also it's a huge balance of depending on the performers to promote as well. Yeah, yeah. And so you've mentioned sort of like price setting a few times and how what is the process of that and like food and drink minimums and ticket prices and how do you? Yeah, so our food beverage has been, you know, a standard, like it's been $25 for years and years. So um, people always know that the menu is really high quality and like the drinks are really high quality too. And, um, you know, we kind of count on that. Um, honestly, if our food and beverage was lower, we just have to make ticket prices higher because it all goes to one place to, you know, pay our rent, pay our staff and pay the artists. Um, so the ticket, I mean, the food beverage is always standard. Um, the ticket price, you know, we operate as fairly as possible to go okay if we can charge 35 for this artist this is how much every 35 dollar ticket artist gets paid okay like this artist we can charge 75 for so what's the most we can pay someone that we charge 75 for um and it's my job to honestly do a lot of math um which is i think exciting because you know as much as i was a theater kid i like did really well in math in school <laughs> I was like, ooh, math. Um, it, it's really just kind of factoring in, you know, if we know we have an artist that can sell really expensive tickets, but they have like a really low food and beverage minimum, we can pay them less, which is crazy to factor in. Sometimes I'm in a meeting about, oh, well, this like artist audience is just orders hamburgers. And I'm like, oh, like we have to pay them less. So it's, it's always trying to be like, how can we pay artists as much as possible and also stay open? Um, it's, it's really tricky, especially when like, you know, in the current age that we're in, um, people are pickier about what they go to see because we're still in yeah. a pandemic and people have less resources to, you know, spend on entertainment. So it's really just trying to, um, keep things going and support the artists as much as possible. Yeah. And is there a dream artist to have perform at 54 Below that, hasn't happened yet there's so many it's so oh. hard after 10 years that it's like oh my god like I remember when it was just my dream of dreams to have Brian Stokes Mitchell and like you know forever I was like yes 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 and, and then it happened and he's coming back again soon so definitely like you know a huge part of what's amazing is I get to work with so many people who I grew up obsessed with them on cast albums and you know booking like Norbert Leo Butts and Cher Renee Scott it's like wow like I every time I'm in the room and here you know, Anthony Rapp or Adam Pascal singing on our stage. And I'm like, oh wait, I made that happen. Um, it's the dream. Like it's fully me when I was listening to cast albums and like dreaming of even seeing these people on stage, let alone booking them at a club that I am the programming director at is amazing. Um, yeah, there, there definitely are still people that are on the dream list, but I will say that after me being, you know, at 54 for nine years, um, certainly less all the time. So I'm like, yeah, you did it. Um, we're going to announce an artist soon who I can't say because I haven't been fully announced yet and like all the T's crossed and I's dotted um who's like oh my god I've been trying to book this person for six years and we finally did it so it, it all the time it's um you know when there's really those dream artists often they're people who like oh they're on a tv show right now and they can't you know it takes years sometimes crazily um but a big part of my dream too was just like 
being part of putting people on stage who I think are really important voices of our generation. And um, I did like a new musicals and concert series at 54 a number of years ago where I produced 10 musicals and concert in 10 weeks that all were shows that had never been produced in New York before, but had significant workshops or regional productions. I just held up my middle finger back, so I'm sorry. Um, and, and so we did 10 of those. They were amazing. And one of those shows was Be More Chill. And one of those shows was A Strange Loop. And thinking on that now and being like, you know, that has nothing, you know, like I'm not saying that Fifth Orbolo or myself were directly responsible for the following trajectories, but we got to be a stop on the journey of both of those shows when they hadn't been done in New York yet. And so many people, because I just know all the folks who were there those two nights are like, oh my God, remember when no one had seen it in New York yet? And I saw it at 54 Below, like that crazy night and Michael R. Jackson sang this song and like the whole original Be More Chill Out of Town cast came. And um, yeah, like there's just been so many lucky nights like that where it's like the beginning of a collaboration or the beginning of a bigger moment for a certain writer or a certain musical. Um, I think all of those have been like real dream shows that have happened along the way. And, you know, the two other big ones that I'll say briefly have been um, the Jonathan Larson project, which I spent years developing and putting together was like my huge dream 54 Below show that um, I got to do. And um, and then Rachel Lily Rosenblum and Don't You Ever Forget It, which is another show that closed in Broadway previews and had never been performed since. And Max Friedman uh, directed and I produced it. And we did this like incredible version of it in concert starring Bonnie Milligan, who's since blown up. Um, and really, I feel like those are the nights where you're like, oh, wait, like this is only happening one night in New York and nothing exactly like this is going to happen again. And that's like the ultimate magic of Cabaret. Yeah. And so you mentioned um, Be More Chill, which of course you went on to produce on Broadway. And so that leads me to ask, how do you balance other things like Broadway producing and writing books with 54 Below? What has that been like? It's so like, part of it is that the owners of 54 Below have always just been so supportive and so like, you know, understanding of like the balance of doing different things. They all do many things other than 54 Below. And I think um, with them, you know, if you're getting your work done and if you're doing your job, they fully support that I might be, you know, producing Be More Chill or writing a book or doing something else. And that has, you know, been such a great thing to have and made me feel very supported and and able to do all of it. Um, At the same time, it's been interesting to run 54 Below during a pandemic because I don't have the ability to do as many things right now. Like right now, I'm really just like, 54 below because of all the additional challenges of you know programming during the ongoing pandemic of it all um so it's hard it does take a lot of like wait is this the thing that like I really really want to do and is it going to be worth you know all the time that it takes outside of work like with any of us who are pursuing multiple things at once um and I think over the years there's been a lot of me being like yes of course like I'm so excited to write my fourth book or to like do a runs a minute about Hal Prince or like, you know, I just worked on the Tick Tick Boom movie. And then it's quite a bit of like, oh, that's a really awesome opportunity. But like, how many hours a week am I doing 54 Below right now? And like, am I going to be able to do both those things and like maintain a healthy balance of work life stuff? And and you really just make choices based on, you know, what makes sense for you at the time. Um, It has been a, a interesting thing to me how like right before the pandemic was like the busiest year I'd had since that year I mentioned when I was moving to 54 Below, where like, you know, in 2019, it was Be More Chill on Broadway. Like I produced an off-Broadway show. I worked on producing a show regionally and I was, you know, doing so many things. And then it was the pandemic and we all sat in our apartments trying to maintain our sanity and doing, you know, various other things, but like, you know, isolation. And now it's like very different where I feel like I really am just like 
54 below focus for our 10th anniversary year very much so but um I feel like these things always go in waves and phases yeah and so how often do you attend the actual shows at the club you know, it really depends. Like I, we do 14 a week. Um, and at one point I checked and I was like, oh, like, I feel like I'm a- attending an average of like three a week, which when you add it all up, you're like, wait, I see over 154, uh, 150 shows at 54 below a year. That's so many. And then you're like, oh wait, there are 11 shows every week that I'm missing. So <laughs> that's kind of a crazy part of it. Like a lot of doing the job is always reading the show reports, which our production managers, right. Who are there at every performance. Um, and being constantly in touch with our production assistants who are also there uh, providing support for the artists at every performance. Um, so that even if I'm not at a show, I have a good sense of like what the audience reaction was like, what the show, how the show went. And obviously always also reading the set list so that I like know what the artist is going to be performing. Um, so it's such a balance because we're not, you know, a Broadway or off-Broadway show where we're doing the same performance eight times a week. It's like kind of being able to keep tabs on things when you're only seeing some of them. It's a huge, it's a huge part of the challenge of it, especially when I think people understand that, like, you know, for me, I'm working all day to book the shows and like, you know, run 54 Below's programming department. So like, of course I'm not going to be there every night, but sometimes there is a sense of like it being 24 hours a day. Um, I think people have understood over the years that it's not possible to attend everything, but I'm still always trying to attend as much as I can. Yeah. And so how much input do you put into sort of artist set lists and things like that? Are you very involved in that or? It really depends. Honestly, like a huge part of it is um, trusting artists to like make their own decisions that are right for them. So much of it though is like, you know, a lot of times someone will be like, oh, like, do you know someone who would be great to sing XYZ song? Or like, hey, like I want to ask a special guest to do my concert. Like, do you know any new writers that might write something like this? So um, there's a decent amount of like artistic matchmaking in that way, um, contributing to content. And people will often, you know, like around the time that Sondheim passed away, I had a number of conversations with artists who were like, you know, Steve was very like meaningful to them. They worked with Sondheim um, and they were like, should I change my show to do a Sondheim show? Should I do the show that we were planning on? And having those conversations with people at such a like sad time and also at a time when people were really like struggling to be like, how do I celebrate Sondheim but not capitalize on this? And also like I was already planning on doing another show. So, um, you know, that's a random example though of like a time when I might have a more in-depth conversation with an artist about content. Um, But it does happen in various ways that, um, you know, even after nine years, I'm always like, oh, I'm having a different conversation about someone who's asking me about a kind of material they want to do in their concert. So it does happen sometimes. And then sometimes I'm like, oh my God, Lorna Luft's coming. This is the thing she wants to do. She knows what she's doing. Like, go Lorna Luft, go. And I never have another, you know, word with the artist. I'm like, amazing um you know it, it it kind of varies from artist to artist and from show to show yeah and I just this is just sort of a fun fact but do you know who's performed at 54 below the most that's a great question it's such a good question because some of those things are actually harder to figure out than one might realize like I was like oh for the 10th anniversary I should really go through and be like how many artists have we done that it was their first cabaret like there's no real way for me to go yeah. to I'm like I don't know it's thousands and thousands of shows and you would have to google thousands of artists to find out if they ever did something somewhere else before anyway you get it but I don't know if we actually do know like who's the literal person who's been on stage the most if we dug 
we could probably figure out like who's done their solo show the most times. Like it might be Marilyn May, um, might be Michael Feinstein himself. Um, I don't actually know that, but that would be possible. But being like, oh my God, like what performer has actually gotten on stage? And it's sometimes been group shows. I don't even know if we can figure that out, which kind of makes me want to post about it and be like, who people think it is and we'll figure it out. So how do you find the balance between solo shows and group shows? And is there one you prefer having more of or? I definitely feel like both are essential. And I I don't think we would still be open if we weren't like embracing the idea of like, hey, let's celebrate, you know, Whitney Houston one night and like Pask and Paul the next night. And then the next night have a Broadway artist who was established in the 60s. And then the next night, a Broadway artist who made their debut this year. Like we kind of depend on all of that being in the center of the Broadway ecosystem and embracing all of these different things. Um, Group shows, I mean, like that's so important. There are so many folks that I don't think would have ever done their own show if they weren't in a group show. And there are so many things that, you know, when we do new writers, um, it's so amazing to have new writers gain new audiences because someone comes to see those two performers and you know same thing goes the opposite way so we're really dependent on all of it um but it is still a balance like we can't have a week where all we have are 20 person shows and um and vice versa it just depends um so much of it also is like you know I'm always paying attention to the calendar like I just was talking to an artist who like they have a window of time in their schedule to play in October and the only spot that makes sense is like right before Halloween and I'm like this needs to be a Halloween show because like audiences want a Halloween show here. You can take the spot, but you have to do a Halloween show. It's a, a weird, you know, there's so many conversations like that that I'm like, no one else is having this conversation. <laughs> yeah. And so you mentioned that um, when you first came to New York, you went to Joe's Pub and things like that. And so how do you think that there's a distinction between what makes a 54 Below show and what makes, say, a Joe's Pub show or a Green Room 42 show or... Sometimes yes and sometimes no. Um, I feel like the, you know, we're probably the most like Broadway centric. Like, you know, if someone is like coming into the city and there's someone who's like, I'm here for five days, I'm going to see seven Broadway shows. Like, hopefully I think like we're the venue that they might check first be like, oh, what cabaret show can I also catch? I think it's like amazing that other venues have the ability to kind of stretch a little bit in different directions that we might not always be able to, um, you know, because we're like an entity unto ourselves. Like we're not attached to a nonprofit theater. We're not attached to a hotel. Um, we're just kind of like our own little startup business that's like related to the theater district. So um, there is a little bit of a difference in that way, but at the same time, it's like, you know, I love, Joe's Pub. I love the Beachman. I love Green Room 42. Um, so many of my friends play there and I'm like, this is great. And I'm also like, oh, if that show was at 54 Below, that also would have been great. So there, there's certainly a lot of crossover. And then sometimes I'll be like, oh, wait, that artist's amazing. I didn't know about them and found out about them from another venue that discovered them. So I think we're all a little bit different with crossover. Yeah. And so when you took over at 54 Below, how did you make it sort of the center of the Broadway community and how did you get the word out? And You know, our marketing team and press team have been amazing over the years, as have the owners. And a lot of what our goals were has been, have been um, making it feel like Broadway's living room and like a place that you would go if you were doing theater, a place that you would go if you were aspiring to do theater, a place you would go if you like love theater and wanted to see something that was, you know, hey, it's like it's Tom Kitt performing a song he just wrote. And in a few years, I'll see it on Broadway, like really going like, okay, theater goers do want to see 
um, more intimate shows. They want to see behind the scenes stuff. They want to get to know that, you know, understudy who's going to be um, the person they see as the lead next year. Um, so really leaning into that kind of like Broadway's living room vibe. Um, so much of it is like, you know, my obsessive theater nerddom that encapsulates both classic musicals, um, traditional musical theater, new musical theater, old writers, new writers, old performers, new performers, you know, I'm simplifying it by saying old and new, but just like a huge variety of stuff. Like if you, you know, caught me on the street listing my iPod, I might be listening to like a flop from the sixties or like a demo that someone sent me yesterday of a new musical theater writer. So I think me being able to like pinpoint all of those areas of the theater community and kind of bring them together on our calendar has been a huge part of my contribution. And then like, you know, truly our, our team has gone above and beyond over the years to like establish our place as, um, you know, that Broadway cabaret space on 54th street. Yeah, yeah. And so this is, um, I'm not sure, but without naming any specific examples, um, do you sometimes think about like sort of like going outside what you would want to see, but like thinking that other people would want to see it or? Definitely. Um, yeah, sometimes I feel like in my like theater going life, like I remember, and I won't say the name of this musical, but like years ago I was seeing a musical and I was like, okay, this isn't like my favorite musical. Didn't hate it. It was just like, okay. And then the leading actor had a song and I was like, oh my God, this song is amazing. And that was the one song that everyone in the audience was like not liking and like making noise during. And like, sometimes I think of that and I'm just like, that show, a lot of people loved it. It wasn't for me. I loved that one song. It wasn't for them. Like, that's all great. And like, I definitely like, you know, we have 365 days in the year and two shows each night. Like every artist isn't going to be my favorite artist. Sometimes I'm like, oh my God, that's someone who like these people I know love that person. And like, they'll be so excited to see them. Um, It's, you know, I feel like I, over the years have been like, I know as an artistic leader that I can judge, um, you know, something that's quality, but might not be my favorite is still of quality is still worthwhile. Um, you know, we all as human beings are allowed to be like, okay, like this musical, I love this kind of musical. I don't love like, you know, so really embracing that and being like, there is an audience for this. It might not be me. Um, that's been a big part of it. And it's also been interesting to really try to stretch like you know I'm a musical theater girl but a lot of times we'll have musical theater folks who are doing songs I don't know and I'm like wait now I'm introduced to like a really cool pop artist I didn't know before like that's awesome and um and then also similarly like there have been artists we've had that are not super Broadway centric that um are not super theater centric that I'm like okay tracing their audience and looking at their demographic and being like well even though they're not theater centric they do have a lot of fans that I think are also theater fans I think this could work out and having that be a big success and, and really being like, okay, how do we find this audience more and build on these kinds of artists? Um, yeah, we, we have tried all kinds of different things over the years. And really, it, it is always fun to me when I get to learn a new kind of music from Broadway artists singing it. And so we've talked about new musicals a few times. And so when you're deciding whether to put on a new musical, how much do you usually get to hear of it? Or do you read it? Or Sometimes I do. Um, sometimes a lot of times when it's a writer I know and they want to do a 54 show and it's like a new work I'm like go like go with 
God, like I, I trust you completely, like do whatever you want to do and ask me when you have questions, but like, I don't need to listen to it. Um, when it's newer writers, a lot of times I will definitely check out their work. Um, but that said, it's another thing where I'm like, oh, I really like that person's work. Oh, that person's work. Like, that's not my favorite thing, but like there's an audience for it or like they deserve a stage or like maybe their next musical will be my favorite. So with people I don't know as well, I do check them out in that way. Um, with people I know at all, I'm always like, you know, I trust you to make a cool new thing. Um, and also like for me, I'm someone who never wants any spoilers about anything. Like I never look at production photos for a Broadway show before I see it. I can help it. I'm always like kind of trying to retain that joy. So especially if it's like an established writer, we just had um the great David Yazbek, who actually wrote the first Broadway musical I ever saw, The Full Monty. Um, he did a series of uh, shows of 54 Below that were a new musical that he's working on, several different versions of it in concert on our stage. Um, and I was like, I never, I didn't want to listen to any of it before. I was like, of course, I just, you know, we all trust that whatever David Yazbek does will be magic. So um, it definitely depends on the show. I actually saw that on Dead Outlaw. That was fantastic. Oh my God, so cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so this is sort of maybe an, un an unusual experience at 54 Below. What was it like to have the um, Real Housewives filming there and all of that? And how was that set up? Um, that's honestly, that's a great example of something that's been so successful that um, definitely have, you know, Broadway folks work on that show. Um, Broadway folks have been special guests in that show. But um, it is a show that's like, it's not a person that you necessarily have seen on Broadway before. And it's been such a wonderful success for us. And um, I'm not super familiar, but so many of my, you know, my two cousins who I'm really close with came to New York specifically to see that show. And I was like, oh, this is so exciting. So um, it is, it's a different level of glamour that kind of harkens back to like studio 54 heyday of um folks like that joining us who are you know popular tv reality stars um and we also have had uh you know on the opposite end it's always really special when we have someone on stage who's not known as a performer but who is like a theater person and that tends to also bring out an interesting level of celebrities and like i was thinking about so a number of years ago, and this is the opposite of Countess Luann, we had uh, Jack O'Brien, who's amazing, oh. you know, 20 award winning director, Jack O'Brien did his own show. Um, and I remember that Mike Nichols and Diane Sawyer were sitting behind me and it was shortly before Mike Nichols passed. And that was like just the ultimate Broadway royalty, which we've been lucky enough to, you know, have in the house many times. Um, just like that old school celebrity glamor and excitement. Um, I feel like some of the housewife shows have brought that and some of the like old fashioned Broadway shows have brought that. Yeah. And do you still get starstruck either by people <laughs> perform or people you meet in the audience or? Definitely. You know, as many times as I have interacted with the writer William Finn in my life, I will always be starstruck by him. He'll always oh. be my favorite writer. I'll always be like, oh my God, it's Bill Finn. <laughs> um, certainly, like definitely there's people like that. And it's also folks who, um, you know, I have worked with at 54 Below for so many years. Like we have had Norm Lewis, who's like the nicest man on earth at 54 Below um, for his Christmas show so many years running. And I still will like walk into the green room and be like, Norm, like, do you need anything? Like, you know, I I'm so excited for your show tonight and be like, I'm talking to Norm Lewis, like, oh my God. <laughs> so I, I definitely feel that still. Um, but there's a certain sense of, you know, I always tell 
um, my interns, like there's such a, and you know, assistants and folks who work at 54 below that I've been lucky enough to, you know, work with over the years. Like there's such a balance in theater between really being excited and starstruck and like passionate, um, and making sure that the artists are also comfortable. And that is a possible balance to strike. You know, it is still okay to be like, Oh my God, it's Norm Lewis. And, and not make him feel like, okay, is this like a, a person who's booking my show or like a person who's going to get my autograph and run away <laughs> screaming? Um, maybe both, but, but it is, it is a, a balance that I think um, is part of like what makes working in theater so exciting. Cause if you strike it, you kind of get to remain excited about things and also work on them. Yeah. And so how much rehearsal do shows get at 54 Below considering there are 14 a week? Yeah. You know, every show gets a couple hours as a sound check the day of their show. And that's really it as far as time in the space, because as you said, of the number of shows a week. So um, depending on what the show needs, like they might have a certain number of rehearsals before that, you know, that they do at rehearsal studios or homes or wherever. Um, and we don't usually like, you know, we aren't directly involved with that unless it's a show that I'm hands on producing. Um, I won't, wouldn't actually know that. But you know, I think musicals and concert do tend to have more rehearsals. Sometimes a lot like our solo artists will come and do material or shows that they've done enough times before that they're like, oh, I'll just do the sound check and that's really all I need. Um, it's definitely a range, but people do only get two hours or so in the space per performance um, when they're actually in the space. And so I'd be curious to know about um, where you were with 54 Below when the pandemic first hit and when the lockdown happened. Yeah, it was so crazy. So where I actually was, was it was my first day on set for the Tick, Tick, Boom movie when oh. like everything shut down, which was a very crazy day for all of us for different reasons. But I specifically was like sitting on the floor of the Tick, Tick, Boom uh, food trailer, like where everyone was like eating and everything um, and talking about like what's happening, um, like kind of postponing 50 or below shows, canceling 50 or below shows, being like, okay, like how do I move everyone from the next two weeks to the other day? This is so crazy, two weeks. Um, so that's where I literally was. But um, yeah, it was, it was really um, weird for us because unlike other shows that um, had a similar experience to each other of like, okay, we're shutting down and we don't know when we're gonna start again, but we have one cast and one creative team we had hundreds of people on different dates that we were constantly, you know, rescheduling on a rolling basis. Like there was no time during the pandemic when I wasn't in touch with artists because we didn't, and none of us knew at any point, right? Whether like, will Cabaret come back, you know, in end of 2020? Will it be February, 2021? Maybe it'll be April, 2021. So I, it couldn't be like, hey, every hundreds of shows in the 54 Below calendar are canceled. It was more like, we'll keep rescheduling on a rolling basis until we end up with what we can open with. And then when we found out um, in late spring of 2021 that we could open in early summer of 2021, um, it was a whirlwind like of crazy round the clock, like programming our reopening summer with shows that literally were like on the calendar, but been had been rescheduled for a year or more and then also shows that happened and got put together in a matter of weeks to be like okay like this is happening now do you want to be part of the reopening summer um so that was very wild and people really like went above and beyond and made it happen oh yeah yeah and so um how did you put together this sort of streaming during the pandemic of the old shows and how did you choose which ones to stream yeah you know um the hard thing was like we we didn't have the resources before the pandemic to do the streaming stuff that we ended up doing that like really people only were really able to negotiate these things and put them together because of the pandemic crazily enough so um when the thing first struck 
the thing I mean is COVID and we were um, kind of re-airing like YouTube videos in full of shows that had happened previously live with audiences. That was one thing. And we were so glad to get to do that. We really just kind of reached out to as many artists as we could and asked people if they wanted to do it. Basically, it wasn't like a huge, like, let's pick. It was really just casting a wide net and figuring out you know, whose we could air um, that existed. And then once the streaming program got started, um, it's now, um, hey, we have this amount of money per month to do this amount of streams. Um, which stream should we do and what's going to reach the most people? And, you know, how do we allocate this and make all of these successful? And it's been, you know, a huge job for our production department to make it look beautiful and to like work with the kind of camera angles and equipment and what we have in the space at 54 to make it feel like people are really there even though they're seeing it from their own living room um and you know our marketing department to make the streams happen and get the word out but um yeah it's just trying to just like 54 below every week is such a variety of different kinds of acts making sure that our streaming roster is also like hey this week you can stream a show that's jerry herman and next week you can stream a show that's you know the spice girls so keeping it keeping it different and a lot of variety in the schedule so of course 54 Lows is always very successful, but was there any point where you were questioning whether it even would be able to come back or? Yeah, I think um, like we all had a lot of crises in terms of just like existential, like are people gonna feel comfortable eating in close quarters while people sing at them, you know? And on Broadway and in theaters, people can wear masks because they're not eating and drinking and we're a combination of a restaurant and a performance space. So um, yeah, definitely like, you know, none of us are scientists in the theater, unless, of course, you had a double major, and in that case, congratulations. But um, it's impossible to kind of, it was impossible to guess, like, what would happen. And honestly, for me, it's not just will audiences return, it's like, will enough artists feel safe to fill our schedule and make it so that we can stay open and do enough shows to, you know, build our 54 Below calendar back to what it was before the pandemic? Um, luckily, the answer has been yes, and it's been so amazing, and I think people have been happier than ever to be in a room, you know, watching songs being performed by their favorite artists and new people they're discovering. Um, but at the same time, like it goes up and down every time um, there's, you know, a outbreak or like a new variant. I'm like, okay, like which artists are going to have to reschedule and who can I get to replace them? So it's a different set of um, things that I deal with every day than it was before the pandemic with some crossover. <laughs> And have there, do you have any particular like memories or stories of times when you'd, when you've had to like book someone at the very last minute or something like that? So many, honestly, so oh. many that that might be why I don't have memories of it because <laughs> now it's like so frequent that, um, you know, it's crazy. I think, um, let me try to think of a good really last minute thing. Maybe we should come back to this one because that's the thing like before the pandemic so much of it was I feel like Norbert Leo Butts the consummate professional that he is like at one point he filled in super last minute and it was you know the best show ever because it always is with him um he does like such an incredible full band show where it's just like he does a combination of like his own original stuff and Broadway stuff and I feel like he filled in last minute and it was like oh not only is it like someone doing us a favor it's Norbert but honestly so much of it has become that it's like you know a combination of people who want to plan their shows six months in advance and folks who do put together things last minute because they don't always know their schedules you know with the theater world um it's awful but a lot of times I'll get people who want to do shows because their show just closed so that's been another thing where like it's unpredictable not because of COVID but because 
you know, after the Tonys, these shows might close and these folks might want to be on a stage shortly after. Um, so it's really an interesting set of challenges that like kind of lead to what gets filled in last minute. Yeah. And so how many of the shows do you produce yourself um, beyond? Yeah, it depends. I mean, there have been big ones that I've produced, like the Jonathan Larson Project, like Rachel Lee Rosenblum, and sometimes we'll produce series where um, when we like produce a series, it's really the shows are produced by like the individual writers or artists, but as like we have an overall um, promotional bent on like doing a new writer series or doing a new musical series. Um, honestly, like in the current times, I haven't been producing that many. I produced uh, Runs a Minute that celebrated Hal Prince. Um, most recently but because of like all the demands of running the venue during the pandemic it's been less than usual um but i would say usually it's like only a couple a year that i'm like really hands-on doing um one of the best parts of it though has been being able to work with a lot of people who are early career producers who've done work at 54 below where i'm you know working with them every day to they're producing their own 54 Below shows. And then those folks have gone on to like produce on Broadway, like, you know, produce regionally, um, do all kinds of great work. So we have like a huge amount of people that have produced over the years that like real, like some of them are literally on Broadway right now as performers. Um, and so many of our group shows really require like someone who can do casting, who can do marketing. Um, and then I'm like helping them, overseeing them, sometimes mentoring them, but they're the producers, which um, that's like kind of one of the best parts of running 54. Yeah. And so how have you approached programming for this 10th anniversary season? So um, one of my, um, I really was excited about the idea of doing a 10th anniversary show every month. Um, for our fifth anniversary show, we did uh, like just one night that was on the fifth anniversary. And it was, you know, a lot of our most regular artists who had been with us for the past five years at that point and had done a lot of shows. Um, and that was so special. And for the 10th anniversary, I was like, oh, how do I one up that? So I was like, okay, like we'll have one 10th anniversary show that's like 10 years of 54 Sings, which are like the shows that celebrate different musical groups 10 years of musical theater history like 10 years of lgbtq plus pride 10 years of holiday shows you know all kinds of celebrating different parts of our programming so we actually have one a month and then we have a super special one that's in june that's actually on the 10th anniversary that's being produced by amy sap who um has been uh, our late night programming director for a couple years as well um and that's gonna be um instead of what we did last time which was like 10 years of current regular artists um, this time, our 10th anniversary show is going to be about like the future stars of theater and cabaret. Um, so really focus on like the next 10 years by, you know, having that 10th anniversary show be about that. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. And so what would you or what do you see coming up for 54 Below in the future, whether it be bigger changes or just the shows that you have coming up or? Yeah, you know, one thing I've been super excited about, like the past year of theater reopening has been so exciting. The past year of like new musicals finally happening again and new productions that had waited for so long. And so many of the performers from those, I'm like, oh my God, like when can we get these people on the 54 Below stage? And part of the thing that I think is also tricky about programming right now is, um, I think pre-COVID people were more able to do a concert on their night off. And now in COVID times, it's like, wait, I'm doing a Broadway show. Like I, I can't do a concert on my night off because I like don't want the additional exposure or like yeah. you know, the COVID of it all. So there's so many people that have made amazingly exciting debuts or you know had incredible performances 
over the past year that could not do a 54 stint at the same time that I'm like, oh my God, when are they going to get on our stage? Um, I just saw, I've seen Strange Loop so many times over the years and seeing Jaquel Spivy, who's the new lead in Strange Loop, was like, oh my God, whenever he does his 54 Below show, it's going to be incredible. Um, and people like Katrina Lang, like people that are making these incredible performances this year, I'm like excited to at some point have those folks on our stage. As far as like the future in general, I think... Um, you know, it's been so interesting to look back at 10 years and be like, oh, such and such people were new writers when we did their new writer show eight years ago. And now they're like established writers. Um, so really looking to the future is so much about the artists and so much of going like, okay, who are the folks that are just starting out now that we can really welcome to our stage and, you know, nurture in whatever way we can um, that are going to be a huge part of Broadway and off Broadway in the years to come. Um, so yeah, just so many of the, um, again, folks like the writers of six we just had a 54 below for the first time people who are starting to emerge into the theater community in new ways and and having them do 54 below when they're not working on their shows yeah and so the last question i'd love to ask which i ask everyone is um what advice would you give to somebody just starting out in the theater you know i feel like so so much of it is about making your own work and also like finding your people and not waiting for someone to necessarily give you an opportunity before you make something whether that's making you know a podcast whether it's making a you know reading of a new play in your apartment for 10 people i feel like so much of the like tip I want to tell anyone who's interested or who's a student or who's just getting started is just like start somewhere basically. So um, again, like it can be at any level. And I feel like that always leads to something, whether it's you learning more about a piece or about what you want to do or a next opportunity for whatever you're working on. Um, but really just like making something. And I've been so amazed with friends of mine who made um, new recordings during the pandemic, like during times when we couldn't do live performance. Like I feel like I know so many folks who've like gone into recording studio made their apartment a recording studio like bought a little bit of equipment taught themselves how to like make a web series like so much of like our generation has been like had to do that because of a circumstance and I think that it's turning those like circumstances into opportunities yourself that's really the key um so yeah I definitely think it's that yeah well thank you so much for doing this it's been so interesting and I appreciate it Thank you for such thoughtful questions. Like I really was so excited to talk to you and, and I feel like so much of what you do covers so much ground. So thank you for oh, honestly you. coming up with such good questions. <laughs> thank you, I appreciate that. Listeners, yeah. thanks so much for tuning in and remember to go see 10 years of musical theater history at 54 Below on May 2nd. And make sure to tune back in next time for a very special interview with Chris Moron and Anne Tournier. They are the minds behind the new Broadway musical, The Little Prince. Chris is the narrator, adapter, and co-director, and Anne is the co-director and choreographer. Make sure to tune in for a fascinating conversation about how this international sensation landed on Broadway. And thanks for listening. <laughs>